Good afternoon. Welcome to Grace Church for the service tonight. It's really raining outside. Um, we're going to do a short song service um, from the Blue Hymnal tonight. Uh, first selection is number 368. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Uh, let's sing all four of number 368. song. Let's go up to the front to number 22. <clears throat> when in the night I meditate. Let's sing all four of that one as well. Thank you. 
For our next one, uh, let's go back to number 190. Let's sing all three of 190. Sing a new song to Jehovah. Let's go to number 413. See how many there is here. Um, Let's sing um, the first and the third of I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say, number 413. Thank you. 
O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His fold. The Lord calls us as His own. And what a blessing that is, that we might respond aright to that call. Let's join our hearts together in a moment of silent prayer. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this day. We thank you for hearing our prayer. And we pray that you would be glorified through the time that we spend here this evening together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand together. Beloved, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Hear now his greeting. To you who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved through Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from number 186 in our Psalter hymnal. 186. This evening we gather before the Lord 
as one congregation, but we're a congregation that is united to God's people the world about. And together, we confess the God who has revealed himself to us. We do that this evening using the words of the Apostles' Creed. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our psalm selection this evening is Psalm 127. Psalm 127 comprises a beautiful reminder of the absolute sovereignty of our Lord. It's a very countercultural confession for us because we live in a culture that believes it all depends on what we do, how well thought out our plans are, how uh, determined our efforts, even to the extent where they believe that the future of the climate of earth depends on our appropriate efforts to save it out of some man-made catastrophe. Against these man-exalting claims, Psalm 127 reminds us There's not a thing that we can do that will be effective apart from the sovereign power of our God. And one of the greatest things that he does, one of the most glorious works, you ask men what glorious things they long to do or they long to see, and they talk about the building of nations and the coming of kingdoms, the building of families, covenant families, where God's name is lifted on high, where His Word is applied to hearts and lives. It's a glorious gift, a glorious work, which cannot be accomplished apart from the sovereign power of our God. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. 
It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let us confess the truth of this as we sing these words, uh, which we do from selection 269 in our Psalter hymnal, number 269. As we come before the Lord in prayer, certainly we should thank Him for His sovereign care. Um, You'll see in your announcement bulletins a prayer concern from our missions committee for Reverend Ernie Langendoon, who um, used to serve in Honduras and now serves with Spanish-speaking migrant workers in southern Ontario. Uh, So we need to pray for that. Also, uh, there's a prayer request for the Mexico task event that starts Saturday, um, as Dutton URC is hosting that in, uh, I'm not going to pronounce that, in Mexico. Um, Also, we should praise the Lord for the uh, ministry that occurred in Kentucky last week with uh, the 860 students and sponsors uh, that went to convention. It was really a, a blessing to see so many Uh, young people eager to hear God's word. With that, beloved, let's pray. Father, with the psalmist, we acknowledge none of our efforts and none of our work can avail in the smallest part apart from your sovereign 
blessing upon it. Lord, we are so quick to overlook that reality. We stress and we strive as though it all depended on our success and our ability and our understanding. When in fact, we ought to confess that we will always fall short. We will always fail. But you are always faithful. Thank you for the the blessing of knowing that though we are weak, you are strong. And that you will never fail to do what is good for your people. Lord, we have seen so many reminders of that in our own midst. How you provide, not according to what we desire or what we ask, but according to what we need. How you deliver your people from the depths of grief and oppression. How you provide the healing and the help and the strength that is craved. And how at other times you allow disease or difficulty to continue. That you might work in other ways within our hearts and our lives. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts to trust you. That you would teach us to rejoice in all circumstances. Knowing that you in your faithfulness are at work. In all of the little details, including in the things that seem to us like bad news or difficult providence. And Father, we pray that you would grow our faith in all of these circumstances so that we can echo the confession of Paul in Philippians that we know how to be raised up and we know how to be brought low. We know how to deal with want as well as with plenty knowing that we can do all things through Christ our Lord who strengthens us. And Father, it's in that vein that we look to the missionary calling of your church. You have called us to disciple the nations. And we stand in awe of the task. We're tempted to step back and shake our heads and say, surely not me, surely I am not equipped, I am not smart enough or bold enough. But you remind us that it's not about us. It's about you who have saved us, you who have called us, you who have set this calling before us, and you who will work through us. Father, fill us with such wonder and awe and gratitude for all that you have done for us as individuals and for us as a church that we would be overwhelmed and eager For our neighbors and our family members and our friends and our co-workers to know the fullness of your sovereign care. And give us such a love for them that we would be unable to not share with them the glory and the goodness that come to those who serve Christ. Father, give us opportunities to demonstrate the love of Christ to those in our lives. To weep with those who weep and laugh with those who rejoice. To help those who are in need and and simply to share ourselves with those whom you set before us.
Give us opportunities to tell them about the hope that is within us and to share the joy that is ours in knowing that we belong to You and that we've been promised a blessing of life eternal in Your presence. Father, we pray that You would give us the courage to invite them to worship and that You would use the Word that is proclaimed both informally by us as we speak to them one-on-one and formally as the church is gathered and the Word is proclaimed that faith might be worked in the hearts of those who are yours and that those who have come might be built up and strengthened and matured in their faith. Father, we pray for Brother Langendoon and the outreach to uh, the Spanish-speaking migrant workers of southern Ontario. The labor is great, the work overwhelming, but the results are utterly and entirely in your hands. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to bless this ministry, that you would raise up new leaders, both to proclaim the word and to disciple those who come. And we pray that you would bring in a rich harvest among those who are gathered simply to work and to provide for their family whom you have led to hear your word. We pray too, Father, for our other uh, labors, our other works, both domestically in the United States and Canada and in foreign lands. Lord, continue to raise up those who would proclaim your word. Continue to draw in those whom you have set apart for yourself, and mature them, strengthen them, so that among those who come might be those who are being equipped to serve as elders, who are being equipped to lead as deacons, who are being guided and prepared to disciple the coming generations so that your church might grow and blossom and flourish throughout the world. And again, not just in distant lands, but also more locally. Lord, raise up church plants here in Michigan and rejuvenate existing churches in our community, in our region, so that those which once feared man and in those places where they once went along with the ways of the world, a new spirit would take hold from you and the truth of your word might be proclaimed. The calling to follow Christ and to obey all that He has commanded might be taught in their discipleship. Lord, we pray for the opportunity that You've set before those who will be attending task in Mexico. We ask that You would bless them, that You would use them to uh, bear witness to Your grace and Your goodness, that You would give them safety and security, and that You would work in the hearts of those who go, that they might be built up and strengthened and encouraged and excited about the work of mission, about the work of discipleship. Lord, we thank you for the the many whom you gathered for convention last week. We pray, Father, that you would continue the work that you have uh, done so richly in their lives in the past week, cause especially those young people who were there to be excited about learning about you growing in you, living in the light of your gospel. Father, we pray for this land in which we live. 
There are multitudes who do not know you. Who go through their lives day by day in quiet desperation. Thinking it all depends on them and knowing without any doubt that they are insufficient. Father, we grieve for them. But we pray that you would work through your church to draw them to a new understanding. Leading them to submit to you and to rest in your sovereign care. We pray that you would use your church to lead this land in repentance from its many sins. Sins of greed, of selfishness, of idolatry, of murder. We pray that you would turn our land away from the wickedness and the selfishness of those sins. And that you would bring many in our nation to their knees, trusting in you. We think especially of our leaders For President Biden, for Vice President Harris, for their cabinet, for their departments, for our legislators in Washington, and our federal judges. We pray for Governor Whitmer and for all of her cabinets and departments. And we pray for the the legislators in Lansing and our local magistrates. Father, we pray that each of them might recognize they are merely servants of you. They are not sovereign in themselves. They are not the makers and the arbiters of what is true and what is good, but they are rather servants called to acknowledge you as the King of kings and to govern according to the truth of your word. Make them effective in that. And where they would go astray, where they would exalt themselves instead of you, Lord, humble them, bring them to their knees. Enable them to recognize that there is no hope apart from the true God. And Lord, we pray that you would raise up leaders who are your servants, who are godly, who delight in serving you. To that end, Lord, we pray that you would equip us as we study your word that you would equip us as disciples, that you would equip us for the work to which you call us out in the world, that you would equip us for the, the building up and the strengthening of the families that you've given us. And we pray that you would be glorified through the worship and through the life of this, your people. Watch over all of those who stand in need of your care in particular ways because of illness, disease, grief, Lord, provide what each one needs. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look or prepare to look together to the truth of God's Word that is summarized in, uh, in our catechism in Lord's Day 40, we're going to stand and sing together a rendering of Psalm 41, which you can find in your Trinity Psalter hymnal, number 41, We're going to sing stanzas 1, 2, 3, 6, and 7. 1, 2, 3, 6, and 7 of of Psalm 41.
Well, this evening our text is from Lord's Day 40 as we consider God's will in the sixth commandment, you shall not kill or you shall not murder. But first I'd like to read with you a couple selections from Matthew 5. Kids, you might remember that Matthew 5 is uh, the first of three chapters that we uh, often call the Sermon on the Mount. And in that, Jesus, well, he's talking about what it looks like to live as one of his followers. God's people in that age were really good at looking good. They were really good at outwardly putting on a show that set them apart from those who were not God's people. But Jesus wanted them to know that that's not really the point. The point isn't simply that you look good. The point is that we reveal the truth of our faith from the outside in, that our hearts be devoted to the Lord. And if our hearts are devoted to the Lord, that's going to change the way we behave. It's going to change the way that we look. And that's a a theme that we find throughout this Sermon on the Mount. So looking first at verses 19 through 22. um, I'm sorry, let's start at verse 17 through 22. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, 
that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now pause there. Recognize what he's saying. He's saying it's not sufficient to just not kill your brother. We have to be concerned with the attitudes of the heart. And he takes that up again, starting in verse 38. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Now, summarizing a portion of that word, Lord's Day 40 asks us three questions. First of all, what is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? The answer is, I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor. Not by my thoughts, my words, my look or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be a party to this in others. Rather, I am to put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with the sword. Does this commandment refer only to murder? Well, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder. Envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness, in God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? Well, no. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our enemies as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's just a guess, but I suspect that most of you, when you were children, possessed at least one toy that was special to you. Think for a minute about that toy. Whether it was a truck or a doll, a game or a ball, you loved that toy. You spent lots of time with it. It went everywhere with you, but... At some point, something happened. It got lost. Or you lost interest. Or it broke. That's the hardest thing. It's one thing when your favorite toy falls out of favor because something more exciting comes along. But when the toy breaks, that feels catastrophic. As a child, you kind of even mourn over the loss of that toy. 
Now, in my experience, some toys break because they're poorly made. But other toys break because they're poorly used. That remote control car won't last very long if you use it to play demolition derby, right? That new skateboard won't last very long if you leave it out in rainstorms. Now, my kids always knew that if they mistreated a toy or they abused it, Dad was not going to be happy. And it wasn't because I wanted to play with the toy. I could care less personally about the toy itself. What I cared about was what their behavior said about them. See, that toy came from somewhere. I always explained to them, you know, somebody cared enough to get you that toy. Cared enough to pick out the toy that you would enjoy the most. Or to take you to the store so that you could pick out the one that meant the most to you. If you now take that toy that they picked out with such care, that toy that really represents their love for you, and you take that and you use it carelessly, you leave it out like it means nothing to you, what does that say about you and about how you feel toward them? You see, the way we treat the gifts that are given to us, that shows our heart. And it shows how we feel in our heart toward the giver. This evening, we're talking about the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And it's pretty tempting to greet this commandment with a big sigh of relief. After all, we disapprove of murder. We know it's wrong. And on the surface, at least, it seems a pretty safe bet that we're not guilty. Most of the people in this building have not killed a man or woman. But Lord's Day 40 shows us that murder involves far more than physically taking another person's life. It's far more expansive than that. Because really what this commandment is about is less a matter of shedding blood than asking how we regard and how we treat God's gift of life. When we look at this, the, this particular commandment in that way, as dealing with how we regard, how we treat God's gift of life, well, it becomes a bit more uncomfortable to consider this command. But if we understand truly what God has done for us, we will see that as God's people, as those who love God and are grateful to Him, we will jealously guard that gift of life that God has given. And so that's our theme this evening. God's grateful people guard His gift of life. And as we consider what it means to gratefully guard His gift of life, we're going to see that it starts with the negative task of refraining from deeds that endanger life. See, the very first gift God gave to mankind was life, even before, think about this, even before Adam beheld the creation, even before he named All of those animals, God parading them before him. Certainly well before he was given the gift of a wife. Before Adam examined all his talents or considered all their potential, the very first thing Adam received, Genesis 2 verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Before any other gift, God gave us life. And what God gave, Satan came to steal. 
Satan came with lies. He came with half-truths. He came with convincing arguments to steal that first and great gift that God gave to us. And Adam foolishly listened. God warned him, in the day that you sin, in the day that you eat of the, the fruit of that one tree that I have denied from you, in that very day you will die. And he did. Because on that day, he was cast out from God's presence. And from that day forward, man was born into spiritual death. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 tells us that in the beginning we were dead. Though we physically lived, we were cut off from God. We were cut off from His goodness. We were destined for an eternity of death in punishment for our sin and rebellion. And so even though we physically lived spiritually, we were dead. And that means that murder, for those who have been restored to life, we considered this at convention last week. We talked about how we were born dead. But God, despite our unworthiness, despite our sin and rebellion, God brought us into life through Christ. By grace we have been saved. As those who have been brought into the life that we could never have deserved or earned or merited, must we not cherish the gift of life God has given to us? And if we do, then we will recognize that murder, the taking of life, is truly despicable. Those who embrace murder embrace the desire of our most ancient enemy. Those who threaten murder or even fail to avoid murder. Those who cherish the desire of murder in their heart. These all show themselves, according to Jesus, to be children of the devil. Who, who according to Jesus in John 8, was a murderer from the beginning. My friends, God sent His Son to save us from the wrath that is due to all who bear the image of Satan. Though all men born in Adam's line are born as sons of the serpent, 1 John 4 verses 14 and 15 tell us that we have passed out of death and into life. And therefore... Whoever confesses that Jesus is a son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And therefore we have life. We have the fullness of life. We have the truth of life. And all who have that life have also the spirit of God. Who is molding us and shaping us into the image of our father. That means that we who once were dead, having been given life, we no longer cherish death. We no longer cherish the stealing away of what God gave, but rather we cherish life and we protect it and we preserve it. Refraining from deeds that endanger life. That should stand at the heart of our grateful response to God. And that means more than simply avoiding the act of killing our catechism says, well, the command to not murder means I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor. Not by my thoughts, my words, my look, or gesture. Certainly not by actual deeds. Clearly that encompasses the unjust taking of a life. But 
It also prohibits desiring murder or expressing a desire for murder. In Matthew 5, we heard Jesus teach that murder isn't always something done by the hand. Matthew 5, verse 22, he says, Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. See, even the words that we speak can render us guilty of murder. Because words can destroy a man standing among other men. And words can destroy a man's desire for his living. Words are powerful. They are weapons that attack a man with wounds that maybe they don't bleed. But they harm him far more than a sword or a bludgeon ever could do. Nor is it acceptable to God if we kill those who have hurt or offended us. That's not to say that government may not put to death those who are guilty of murder. In fact, that's the government's calling. That's why they've been given the sword. But we, as individuals, are different. If we take vengeance on our enemies, that's tempting, isn't it? Do unto others as they have done unto you. But if we do that, what are we saying? We're saying that we don't trust that God will justly take vengeance on those who've done wrong. We're saying that we want the job done right, so rather than entrust it to God, we're going to do it ourselves. We're saying that we want to sit on that throne of judgment. And worse than that, we're saying that though we have received mercy that we did not deserve, we don't want them to receive mercy. It's ingratitude. It's idolatry, and it's unbefitting those who have been given life, though we deserve death. Instead, we must heed the counsel of Romans 12, verse 19, which says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the sin of murder, it covers all these things. Taking a physical life, desiring to take a physical life, causing men to despair of life by our words, whether done by your hand as a physical act or simply by your mouth, even when it appears just to your heart to take that life, such taking of life by an individual is wrong in God's eyes. It is an unjust stealing of a life given by God. And as such, it is an act suited not for those who belong to Christ, but for those who belong to Satan. In fact, God warns us to flee also from the temptation to participate in murder done by others. Now, that can be done actively, of course, by inciting hatred or inciting murder, by spreading rumors or creating opportunities, but but it can also be done passively. We can passively participate in murder by not seeking to stop unjust killing, Isaiah 1 verse 17, God calls us to seek justice and to correct oppression. When we recognize that life is in danger, that a life is in danger by others, we're called to step forward and to protect. And if we refuse, then we inherently participate in that murder by others. That's why the Israelite midwives did not feel that they could simply passively stand by. Clearly, they couldn't do what Pharaoh told them to do, throwing these Israelite babies into the river to die. But to them, it wasn't enough simply to step back. They had to do what they could to ensure that 
that they remained in their positions, that no one less conscientious than them would come along to do the wicked work of Pharaoh. They had to seek to protect those children. And likewise, Christians today cannot rest easy as long as it is unjustly legal to murder infants in the womb. We can't rest with that. We can't can't simply content ourselves to say, well, you know, I'm not doing it. Now, how we deal with that is going to depend on the gifts and the opportunities given to each one. But surely, we can't be content simply to turn a blind eye and say, well, at least I and mine aren't. For some, that means that avoiding passive murder means that we need to do something to provide an alternative through crisis pregnancy centers. For others, it will mean advocating for just laws that will protect those most vulnerable lives among us. For others, it will mean standing out in front of that abortion clinic and begging murderous mothers who feel that they have no other option to please consider the options that we offer. And certainly, it must involve our falling to our knees continually before God and begging Him to change the hearts of those who can preserve life. And our calling goes beyond that. That's... Don't misunderstand me. It's, it's not easy to fight against abortion and it's not easy to know that that wickedness happens among us. But in some sense, that's an easy one. Because we can all get on the bandwagon on that one. But what about where Deuteronomy 22 says that we are to build a a parapet or a fence around our roofs? You think, what? How are we to do that? Well, in that time, in that age, men regularly spent time on their roofs, especially in the evening and early morning hours. They sometimes slept up there, in fact, because they didn't have air conditioning. And on the roof, you could catch a breeze. But when people spend time on your roof, it's really easy for them to forget themselves and take a misstep and fall. Or to take a nap there and roll over in their sleep and fall to their injury or their death. And so God commanded that we protect the life of our neighbor by putting an obstruction there that would prevent them from stepping or falling off of the roof. Now we don't spend much time on our roofs, most of us. But the lesson to it is that we are to protect our neighbor from himself, from his own harm. That means that protecting against murder means that I shouldn't hand into my neighbor's care something that could harm him. I shouldn't loan my neighbor a tool without making sure that he knows how to use it. I shouldn't give to a friend who is reckless the keys to my car knowing that he could harm himself or others with it. If I'm an employer, I shouldn't send my workers out to the job without ensuring that they have the safety equipment that will prevent inadvertent harm. And of course, it almost goes without saying that we need to protect the life God has given to us. The internet is absolutely full of videos that show people foolishly risking the lives God has given to them. They climb mountains and buildings without any kind of safety gear. They seek thrills. They try to impress folks with no regard for God's gift of life. Folks, that is sinful. It's a sinful 
risking of the gift of the life that God has given you. God gave that life so that you could use it to serve Him, so that you could use it to serve the people around you. How dare we risk it for the adrenaline rush of a moment's thrill? That's not to say that we can't go out and have fun by any means. But not foolishly. But then we need to take it a step farther. Because all of that's talking about the deeds of our hands or perhaps of our mouths. But those deeds and those words begin elsewhere. They begin inside. And so if we're to guard God's gift of life truly, it has to begin within. We have to reject the desires that promote death. And that's the second point that Lord's Day 40 makes to us. What Jesus said in Matthew 5 makes it clear that God holds us guilty for desiring murder. He says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. See, God regards as a murderer not only he who takes a weapon in hand to unjustly kill, but he who desires someone's death in his heart. Because that desire is the root of sin, and by cherishing that desire, by allowing it to continue and to flourish within you, you're you're giving a home to that sin which is contrary to the attitude God calls you to cultivate. God wants something far better for His children, so He calls us to repent not only of murderous deeds, but of murderous desires. If we cherish the life God has given us, if we cherish that gift, we will reject many desires that come natural to our heart. Our catechism points out envy. Envy is the inclination to despise my neighbor because he has something that I want. Envy is the gateway to hatred. According to Matthew 27, envy is what led the Jews to condemn Jesus to the cross. 1 John 3 verse 12 says that envy is what led Cain to murder his brother. So we must reject that self-idolizing attitude of envy. Likewise, anger. Now, there are forms of anger that are just and righteous. The anger of Jesus when he beheld how the temple had been turned into a place of commerce. The anger we feel when we see shepherds of the church or hear about shepherds of the church who have used their position of authority to abuse the sheep. Such anger is holy. It's right. It's a just anger. But most anger is selfish. It's born of dwelling upon the wrong that someone has done against me. It's what results when we refuse to forgive or to cultivate an attitude of humble desire to forgive. Instead of such anger, Paul urges us in places like 1 Corinthians 6, prefer to be wronged. That's what Jesus says toward the end of our reading from Matthew 5. Someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other cheek. Someone tells you to carry your... Uh, a pack, carry a, a burden for a mile, carry it two miles. Prefer to be wrong, knowing that God sees, that God will make it right. And along with these things, we must reject vengefulness. That's a big word, isn't it, kids? But it simply means that I want to get even. And as we've already seen, vengeance is God's department. That's His job, not ours. So these, these things we must reject, envy, Hatred, anger, vengefulness. For these are attitudes, desires that promote death, that lead us to focus 
on destroying life rather than preserving, on tearing down rather than building up. So if we would refrain from the deeds that endanger life, we need to begin by rejecting the desires that promote death. Thing is, on our own, we're powerless to do that. See, we're addicted from the word go to envy and anger, haunted by hatred. If you, if you don't get that, have children. Right? Envy comes natural. Vengefulness Every child knows how to do it. So if we're to get rid of those attitudes, it's got to be by the grace of God within us. Romans 6 tells us that that we who have trusted in Christ, we've been united to Him. When He died on the cross, we died with Him. Our old nature was crucified on the cross. Sin no longer has power over us. If we're united to Christ, sin has lost its power over us and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within us. And therefore, we have power over envy and hatred and anger and vindictiveness. We have power to conquer those sins, but it's not a power that's ours. It's not a power that we resolve to have. It's a power we gain through the Holy Spirit that we cultivate through prayer, that we grow in as we fall to our knees and ask God to conquer our old man and to bring to life the new. And so that's, that's our calling. If we're to truly honor this sixth commandment, if we're truly to get rid of those attitudes of hatred and murder and vindictiveness and envy that lead to murder, then we need to pray that he would replace envy with contentedness. We need to pray that he would turn aside our hatred and replace it with love. We need to pray that he would conquer the anger within us and give us peace. We need to pray that he would get rid of that vengefulness and cause us to have a forgiving heart. Guys, listen, this is a daily struggle. But it's a struggle we win on our knees. It's a struggle we win as we look at the image of Christ. This this passage about retaliation, man, that, that stops me in my tracks. For many years, that was my sin. How dare you behave that way, speak that way, act that way toward me? That seemingly righteous anger would rise up within me. I wanted to get even. I wanted to see justice done. But God calls us to recognize the only hope we have is that Christ took the justice we deserved so that we could have mercy. And if we have received such abundant mercy, then how can we not in gratitude show that mercy toward others? So we need to pray that God would enable us to recognize the greatness of the gift we've been given, not only with our physical life, but with our spiritual life, because only then can we put off that vindictiveness, only then can we put off that envy, only then can we take up the peace and the love and the selflessness that allows us to put to death these desires. And let us not stop with rejecting what is evil, 
but go on from there to embrace what is good. We heard Jesus say in Matthew 5, verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's not saying we need to somehow attain a sufficient quantity of righteousness to be able... No, he's not saying that. But rather, what Jesus is saying here, your faith must reveal the righteousness you have in Christ. The Pharisees, the scribes, they were good at putting on a good show, demonstrating to everyone they're just a bit better than the average guy. Jesus said, don't strive for that. It's all outward. It's like, I remember going with my dad and my brother when my brother was looking for his first vehicle. He wanted a Jeep CJ5 in the worst way. And we came on this one that it looked okay. It was older, but it was all right. And it had a really decent paint job on it, you know. But then my dad walked over to his car and came back and, and he started going along the body panels. He walked over to my brother and said, you know, a magnet doesn't stick to most of this. Underneath that paint was all Bondo. A lot of work had been done to cover up the rust that was hiding underneath. Right? Well, that's what the Pharisees did. They put on a nice paint job, but it was all rust and decay underneath. God wants us to prefer to delight in righteousness in the heart. And if we delight in his righteousness in the heart, we won't just stop at putting off the ugly, the murderous, the evil. We will delight in life. We will delight in love. We will delight in forgiveness, which reflects the truth and the fullness of Christ. 1 John 4, verse 9, says, In this... The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. If God loved us that much, I mean, He didn't just overlook our sin. He went the full length to pay for all the debt that we had racked up. Think about what we saw this morning. How... We deserve to have everything stripped away from us and to endure an eternity of suffering. And that's what Jesus took intensively. He took all that we would have to suffer eternally and He took it all at once and it utterly demolished Him. That is the antithesis of that murderous rage that lives in the hearts of sinful men. It is a love that is so full, that is so great, that it doesn't just overlook sin. It takes the consequence of that sin in itself so that the person can be truly restored. And then John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In fact, a little earlier he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We love because He first loved us. We are called to love in such a way as to preserve life. Like murder, true love begins in the heart. If anyone says he loves God but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
The attitudes of love are essential for those who would preserve life, for those who would reveal Christ. Love leads us to be patient with our neighbor, recognizing that they're a work in progress just like we are, recognizing that God may be at work in them and we need to be patient in His timing. Love leads us to seek peace with those around us, not just writing them off as unworthy of our time or our effort, but going that extra distance to seek their forgiveness for the ways that we've wronged them and to seek to forgive them for the ways they have wronged us. Love leads us to show mercy toward our neighbor. Recognizing that, yes, he hurt us. Recognizing that, yes, he said something sort of unkind. But recognizing, too, that we've done far worse to God and he loved us. He showed mercy to us. If we show patience and peace and mercy, what we're showing people is the heart of Christ. Who loved us and gave us the truth of life. 1 John 3 verse 18, Little children, let us love, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We need to show love to our neighbor, the antithesis of murder, by allowing ourselves to be inconvenienced for their sake, by allowing our love to cover over a multitude of little offenses and just casting them aside. We need to show love to our neighbor by offering to them our homes, our tables, our riches, our hearts, spending time with them, showing them the love of Christ so that more and more they will desire the Christ who has delivered us. Folks, that's hard. That doesn't come natural to sinful hearts. But if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us, then more and more and more, we will long to be inconvenienced. We will long to put ourselves out for the sake of showing our neighbor the selfless love of Christ. And as we grow in our love for them, we will embrace every opportunity to protect our neighbor's life. As I mentioned earlier, we're called to avoid negligent acts that could endanger others. But if we truly love them, we'll we'll be active in seeking to preserve their life. We see our neighbor heading for danger, we'll intervene. We'll tell that young man, hey, you know, those tires are about to blow. You, You maybe need to change those. Or if we hear someone being slandered, we'll stand up for them. Because we know that those murderous words would deeply harm them. In fact, the only time it's legitimate for an individual to take a life is in protecting the life of one who is attacked. I'm not talking about those in law enforcement or military who are acting, bearing the sword of the magistrate, but individuals who in most cases ought to do all that they can to not take life, to turn the other cheek, to carry the burden two miles instead of just one. But if someone threatens to take your life or the life of another, we are called, according to our ability, to protect the one who is threatened. In fact, Exodus 22 says that if someone breaks into your home in the night, there is no guilt for taking his life out of defense for your family. God calls us to preserve life even when it requires the death of the wicked. And folks, our calling to preserve life extends even to the life of the soul. You see your Christian brother or sister embracing sin. Easy thing to do is to turn your your eye. The hard thing is to go to them privately 
and beg them to come back. I'm not talking about a little slip-up. I'm talking about living in sin. It's hard to go to them and lovingly affirm, I'm no, I'm no angel, I'm not perfect. But you and I need to walk that path of repentance together. And if your neighbor's not a Christian, well, of course they're not living like a Christian because they're not one. But in order to preserve their life, you need to open yourself to them. Spend time with them. Earn the right to share with them the gospel that can draw them out of the death in which they're living. James chapter 5 tells us, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So we need to strive to draw those around us into life. And that extends even to our enemies. We heard what Jesus said in Matthew 5. How we are to love those who hate us. How we are to pray for those who harm us. When we do that, it's hard. It's countercultural, but it shows them something. It shows them that you're motivated by something way different than they are. They see in your care for them who have treated them so harshly the love of the Father who pours out His reign not only on the fields of the righteous but on the fields of the unrighteous. And then perhaps you will gain the opportunity to speak to them. Even those who have mistreated you about the love of the one who can draw them out of the death into which they were born, into the life that will never end. Again, none of this is natural in a society of sinful people. Loving your enemies, defending the innocent, showing love, is about as common as an honest politician. But if we have been saved, if we have been drawn out of death into the truth of life, then more and more we will want that for the people around us. Not just, not just our kids and our grandkids and our friends, but that person who has defrauded us, that other person who has slandered us, that neighbor who's such a pain. We'll want them to turn out of that behavior that is going to condemn them, that is going to end them eternally. And that will draw them into the truth of life. You see, brothers and sisters, we have been given a gift infinitely more precious than the greatest of the toys or possessions that any of us has known. God has given us the excellent gift of life eternal. In thanks for His incomparable gift, we, His grateful people, ought to guard God's gift of life. Physically, spiritually, negatively, positively. And if we do, it will demonstrate that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. So let us pray for the power and let us pray for the desire to guard God's gift of life. And in so doing to reflect His love of life to those around us. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we pray that you would work in us with great power, teaching us to delight in your gift of life, teaching us to turn away from the ways of death and to embrace not just with our hands but with our hearts a preservation of life. And Lord, give us the courage and the conviction to promote life to those before us. Not just physical life, but spiritual life that through us they might encounter Christ. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us ask now in song that God would continue that work within us that He began by His Spirit as we sing number 397, Dwell in me, O blessed Spirit. Number 397. offering this evening is for the work of IRBC. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the work of this biblical counseling ministry. We pray that you would continue to use it to equip your people to minister to one another in the truth of your word and by the power of your spirit. We pray that our offering this evening might bring encouragement to those who labor for IRBC, that they might be reminded of your perfect provision. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified through the gifts that we give as a token of our thanks. 
In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Our offering song this evening is from our Trinity Psalter hymnal, Psalm 108. We'll sing stanzas 1 through 4 and 9. 1 through 4 and 9 of Psalm 108. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.